Well, brethren, within literature and film, there are various kinds of stories that really resonate with people and are basically told over and over again in different ways. And one of these stories, one of these literary forms, is the redemption arc or the redemption story. These stories typically center on a main character who makes serious mistakes, but eventually throughout the story rises above their mistakes and redeems themselves by ultimately turning from bad and choosing to do good in the end. They're fascinating stories. They're entertaining. They're inspirational. You know, some examples of the redemption arc in literature or movies is Jean Valjean, if you think of him. His whole story in Les Miserables is a redemption arc. In a way, Boo Radley from To Kill a Mockingbird. There's a redemption story with his thread in that, in that novel. And Oscar Schindler, though that's based on real life, that's really a story of redemption. He, he ends in a much better place morally than where he began. And perhaps the best known redemption arc in modern story storytelling is Anakin Skywalker or Darth Vader. That is a redemption arc, a classic redemption arc. He starts as an incredibly gifted, special young man. He wants to do what's right, but he has character flaws that are, that are exploited, exploited by a dark influence. He eventually gives in to that influence and becomes this tragic figure who loses all his friends, he loses his wife, and he does unthinkable evil and brings fear throughout the galaxy. But eventually, in the end, when it's all said and done, he sees the error of his way and, in the end, redeems himself by rejecting the darkness and saving his son and the galaxy. It's a classic redemption arc. And I think that's why that character resonates with so, pe so many people, because of the element of redemption in the end. Well, brethren, the Bible also contains the redemption arc. That's a part of the Bible. In fact, Jesus dedicated one of, his, one of his parables entirely to this ark, the redemption ark. He didn't call it that. They didn't have that phrase back then, but that essentially is what it is. Please turn with me to the book of Luke, chapter 15. We know that redemption story, that redemption ark, as the parable of the prodigal son. The parable of the prodigal son. It's a classic example of a redemption story. Now, when we look, and when people in general look at the parable, they usually explain it, and sometimes we in the church usually explain it, through the lens of people who stray from the faith or maybe from their family, usually younger people. Someone who makes poor decisions maybe leaves home, leaves the church, falls on bad times, and then eventually returns. And this is kind of the default lesson we usually derive from the parable. And there's nothing wrong. That lesson is certainly there. People do sometimes leave the church, and this parable gives us hope that they can and sometimes do return and repent. But that's not the only way to view this parable. There's actually another lesson there. There's actually another truth there. When we look at the parable from a slightly different perspective, perhaps a little deeper, just as a disclaimer, this message was inspired by a sermon that Mr. Horchak gave here three weeks ago. And in that message, he made a very passing reference to this parable from the perspective that I'm going to talk about it today. That passing reference became this split sermon. So I wanted to give credit where credit was due. So brethren, today we're going to look at the parable of the prodigal son. Not as a parable about people who leave the church or leave their family or leave something, but as a metaphor of God's overall plan to redeem mankind. Redemption, it's a theme of the word of God. 
Redemption meaning to buy back or to deliver, to release, to liberate. So if you like a title, the title today is The Prodigal Son and the Plan of God. The Prodigal Son and the Plan of God. But before we get into the actual parable, it's important that we remember one of the keys to properly studying and understand a parable. And that is that they are fictional stories meant to teach spiritual lessons. And we have to be careful about try, not trying to find a direct parallel to every aspect of the story, because that can actually lead us into doctrinal error if we try to do that. Uh, that happens with the parable of Lazarus and the rich man. But we search the parables, we search the story for the big spiritual lesson while allowing some parts of the story to simply be story, because that's what they are at the surface level. So with that in mind, as we go through the parable, we will try to examine the big themes that it teaches us. So let's go back and first of all, familiarize ourselves with the parable. It may have been a while since you've read it, so let's become familiar with it. We'll go through the parable very quickly, and then we'll go back and look at it at a more deeper level. First of all, Luke 15, verse 11. Then Jesus said, he said, Jesus, a certain man had two sons. So he begins the parable, and it begins with three characters, a certain man and two sons. Of course, the certain man being the father in the story, and the two sons being the firstborn, who's later described as the faithful, dutiful son, and then the secondborn, the prodigal son, the lost son, or if you're a fan of 70s music, the band Kansas might call him the wayward son whatever you want to call him. I thought that would get some chuggles, but it always doesn't happen. Anyway, carry on my wayward son. That is Kansas, isn't it? I thought so. Okay, all right. And verse 12, the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the portion of goods that falls to me. So he wanted his inheritance before his father actually passed from the scene. So he divided to him his livelihood, his the father allows him to have his inheritance before he actually dies. Now, assuming these characters were Jewish, uh, typically the firstborn would receive two-thirds of the father's wealth or estate, and the secondborn would inherit the other third. So he is leaving with up to a third, most likely, of his father's wealth, put, probably put into cash. So that, the assumption is this is a wealthy father, so that could be a sizable amount of money. Verse 13, and not many days after, the younger son gathered all together, journeyed to a far country, and there wasted his possessions with prodigal living. Prodigal is a word we don't use. It just means wasteful. Some translations translate it reckless, some wild, some the amplified says reckless and immoral living. He just casts off all restraint and spends it wildly. Verse 14, but when he had spent all, there arose a severe famine in the land, and he began to be in want. Then he went and joined himself to a city of that country, and he sent him into the fields to feed swine. So he goes off, he spends literally all the money, and then the famine comes, and he is destitute. He has nothing, and he's now working as a servant on somebody else's farm. Verse 16, and he would have gladly have filled his stomach with the pods that the swine ate, and no one gave him anything. Sometimes it's portrayed that he's actually eating the pods. No, it says he couldn't even eat the pods. He would have eaten the pods if they were available to them. him. He's starving. He's not eating pods. He's starving. Verse 17, but when he came to himself, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have bread enough and to spare, and I perish with hunger? 
So again, we see this is a, a wealthy man, and this was a considerable sum of money. Verse 18, I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and, against, and before you, and I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. And he arose and came to his father, and when he was still a great way off, his father saw him and had compassion and ran and fell on his neck and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight, and am no longer worthy to be called your son. Verse 22, but the father said to his servants, bring out the best robe and put it on him, and put a ring on his hand and sandals on his feet, and bring the fatted calf and kill it, and let us eat and be merry. And this is my son. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found, and they began to be merry. And Mr. Horchek a few weeks ago emphasized that word lost in the Bible doesn't imply lost forever. You can be found, and the prodigal son was found. He did come back. He came to himself. Now, we're actually going to stop here. It's really interesting comparing this to literature because this parable actually is structured much like a movie in that it has three acts. The typical movie has act one, act two, act three, and this parable has three acts. It can be divided almost perfectly in thirds. So we're just going to look at act one and two right now, and then later, later we'll come back to act three. As we mentioned earlier, we're looking at this parable through the lens of not just a person who leaves the church, but of the entire plan of God. So now, as we begin looking at the parable through that lens, let's first look at the main characters and who they represent in this metaphor, because we're making the assumption that it's a metaphor of the plan of God. In this metaphor, in this interpretation, the prodigal or wasteful son is a metaphor of humanity, humankind, mankind. We could call prodigal humanity humanity that goes off from God. And the compassionate father in this metaphor would be God the Father, though the characteristics of this father apply to both the son and the father in the God family. So let's now explore six lessons about God's plan that we can draw out, and hopefully these will help bring some of the themes of the fall holy, day to our, fall holy days to our mind as we approach that season. So let's now look at lesson one, and we'll go back and look at some of the aspects of this story in greater detail. Lesson one, the prodigal son represents a wayward humanity who has rejected God. Let's look at verse 12 and 13 again. And the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the portion of goods that falls to me. So he divided to them his livelihood. And not many days after, the younger son gathered all together, journeyed to a far country, and there wasted his possessions with prodigal or wasteful living. So what's the key theme? What's the key theme? The son rejects the father and his way of life. The son rejects the father. Now what was the father's way of life? That would have been to stay together, to work hard and for both of their sons to receive the inheritance together at the appropriate time. That would have been, in the story, the father's will, the father's way. But the son rejects that way. The son rejects it, and he wants to live his own way. He wants the inheritance now. He wants to leave the family, divide the family. He wants to work. He does not want to work hard. He wants to spend. He wants to follow his own path. And what's the primary motivation of the son? Self-centeredness. Give me the portion that falls to me. Now, interestingly, there's no character in the, parallel, in the parable that's analogous to Satan the devil, but I think 
we see the spirit of that being in that phrase, give me the portion that falls to me. That's, that's the spirit of self right there. Now, does the father argue with him? Does he try to dissuade him? Does he strike him dead? Does he destroy him? Does he present, prevent him from going off his own way? No, the father simply lets him go. Brethren, I'm sure many of you are now already processing the parallels to Genesis chapter 3. So let's go back there really quick. We're not going to read much of Genesis 3. You might want to put a marker in Luke 15 because we'll be going back there. But if we go back to Genesis 3, there are parallels to the story of our, our parents, the, man, the parents of mankind, Adam and Eve. I don't think we need to read the entire account, but Adam and Eve were allured by their eyes and desires, of course, fueled by the temptation of Satan. They allowed their selfishness to control their decisions. Again, of course, because Satan put that in front of them. Now, in the parable, we're not told what comes before the son's request, but we can assume that there was the same kind of desire. He looked at the wealth. He looked at how much that third of the father's wealth and property would be worth, and he desired it. He wanted it, and he wanted it now. He didn't want to wait for it. He didn't want to wait for it. He didn't ask for it. He demanded it. And essentially, that's what Adam and Eve did. They saw what they wanted. Satan presented it to them. He presented them the, the option, you know, you can, you can know both good and evil. And what did they do? They took it. And what was the consequence? They, they took it. And what was the consequence? Well, almost exactly the same as the prodigal son. The consequence is in verse 8. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and Adam and Eve hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. What did they do? They separate themselves. They distance themselves from their God. That relationship becomes different. It becomes distant. It becomes broken. Both decisions, the prodigal son and Adam and Eve, resulted in distance being created between themselves and the father and God, of course, as we see the parallel. Adam and Eve hid, the son leaves. And when we pull back even farther, we see that that's really the entire story of humanity. We've chosen our own way, what we want, not what our father wants, not what he wills for us. And then what do we do? We separate from him. We hide ourselves like Adam and Eve, or we in, metaphorically go on a far journey. In other words, we choose different ways of life based on our own desires, not based on his will. And ultimately, the consequence is found in verse 22. One of the most important verses, verse 22 through 24, in understanding the entire story of the Bible. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us to know good and evil. And now lest he put his hand out and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever, he couldn't have the reward going his own way. Verse 23, Therefore the Lord God sent him out of the Garden of Eden. Again, separation, distance is the theme, to till the ground from which he was taken. And he drove out the man, and he placed cherubim, at the east of the Garden of Eden, and a flaming sword which turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. Again, essential to understanding the entire plan of God. God expels them from the garden and access to eternal life. But like the Father, he didn't try to reason with them, he didn't try to dissuade them, and he didn't destroy them for the decision. 
He simply cut them off. He let them go their own way. He let them do their own thing. He made his blessings inaccessible to them for the time being, but he let them go, just like the father in the parable lets the son go. But really, the reason that verses 23 and 24 are so important is because the rest of the Bible and the entire plan of God is themed around bringing humankind back from this state, back from what happens in Genesis 3, verse 23 and 24. That's the entire plan of God. We could, we could summarize it that way, reversing that separation, redeeming mankind. So because of his sin and selfishness, the child, the son, journeys to a far country and cuts himself off from his father and his family. And because their sin and selfishness, Adam and Eve and their offspring journeys far from the garden and from God's presence and separates themselves. They sever themselves from God. So the prodigal son, in this, view, in this perspective, represents all of humanity. Let's move on to lesson two. Lesson two. The history of mankind is essentially 6,000 years of prodigal living. The history of mankind is essentially 6,000 years of prodigal living. It is the story of humankind. Go back to Luke 15, and we'll look at verse 13 again. Luke 15, verse 13. And not many days after, the younger son gathered all together, journeyed to a far country, there's that separation, and there wasted his possessions with prodigal living wasted his possessions with prodigal living. Those six words don't just summarize his decision, they summarize the entire lifestyle, the entire way of life they embraced. The Greek word for prodigal can mean wasteful, excessive or riotous living, extravagant squandering, basically a way of life without restraints, without law, making decisions on passions and desires, a way of living devoid of, in the story, the father's guidance and protection and safety, and in humanity, a life devoid of guidance from God and his word. We could say that the prodigal son embraced what we've called the getway of life to its fullest extreme. He rejected the relationship with his father and family. He rejected the peace and safety that his father's household provided. He rejected a good future with his father, a secure future, a, a solid, happy lifestyle, to li live a lifestyle of his own choosing. He rejected all that his father was offering him because of his own desires, because of self. And brethren, how is this not the story of humanity encompassed in a, when we look at it from the big picture? It's the story of history. It's a story of why our world is the way it is. Beginning with Adam and Eve and coming down to today, humanity and us who, too, to an extent, have embraced prodigal living. The getway of life, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, whatever we want to call it, that is the story of mankind. I don't think we need to go through multiple Bible passages or to go through the testimony of history to demonstrate that point. We're well aware of it. We see it in the news every day. We read it in the history books. But let's look at Proverbs 1, because I think this is a really interesting section of Scripture that encapsulates the consequences of this decision and encapsulates the direction mankind has gone, that the direction that began with Adam and Eve, the prodigal lifestyle. 
these verses in Proverbs 1 essentially describe the history of man. Proverbs 1, verse 29. Proverbs 1, verse 29. Because they hated knowledge, they, you know, and we can look at this as humanity in general, they hated knowledge and did not choose the fear of the Lord. Adam and Eve rejected that, and we Humanity continues to reject that. Verse 30, they would have none of my counsel and despised my every rebuke. They would not be guided by God. They rejected his guidance. They rejected his authority. Verse 31, therefore, and this really encapsulates humanity's history, therefore they shall eat the fruit of their own way and be filled to the full with their own fancies, prodigal living, wasteful living, a wasteful way of life. You know, they, they just, they eat and they're filled with their own, they, they make their own forms of happiness and their own forms of misery. Verse 32, for the turning away of the simple will slay them and the complacency of fools will destroy them. This foreshadows what comes later in the story and also what comes in humanity's future in prophecy. But whoever listens to me will dwell safely. Again, that's being under the protection of the father. In the story, the father's household dwell in safety for us in the, within the protection of God's way of life through the guidance of his word and through the lead of his Holy Spirit. But whoever listens to me will dwell, he will dwell, will dwell safely and will be secure without fear of evil. Again, that's where we want to be. That's the opposite of the prodigal way of life, the way of prodigal humanity. Because they have gone down the way, the path of the prodigal son, Humanity is, as it says there in verse 31, eating the fruit of their own way. So much, so much depth there. Living with the consequences of their own decisions. So when people ask, you know, sometimes people ask in the world, well, how can, how can we have all this suffering? How can the world be so bad and there be a God? How could God allow this? Well, this is the answer to that question. This, this section of Proverbs, and of course many other scriptures answer it. We have the world we live in because the fruit of their own way, because of the prodigal lifestyle, and because that's being allowed at this time. Of course, there's a plan to reverse it, but that's where we are at this moment. That is the answer to that question. And of course, we can't just use these scriptures and completely point them at the world and excuse ourselves from them. You know, before we were called and baptized, we embraced the prodigal lifestyle as well, all of us, and we still continue to fight that lifestyle. You know, you can call it the prodigal lifestyle or the carnal mind, but it's still a battle, and we still are alert and tempted to go back that way at times, and we have to fight it. So let's now move on to lesson three. Lesson three, the prodigal way of life does and will lead to destruction. The prodigal way of life does and will lead to destruction. It's a fact. It's a law. Let's go back to Luke 15, and we'll look at verse 14 and 15. Luke 15, verse 14, but when he had spent all, you know, he had spent it all, he had wasted it, there arose a severe famine in the land, and he began to be in want, a famine in the land. So a famine hits, a severe environmental crisis, and he has no resources left to defend himself. He can't buy food. He can't find shelter. He, he, he can't do anything because he has wasted it. He faces a severe crisis, and he's destitute. He's not prepared for it. 
It's completely outside his control. And he has no safety because he's completely cut himself off from the safety that his father would have provided him through this famine. He's helpless as he faces the ultimate consequences of his decision. Verse 15, then he went and joined himself, joined himself to the citizen of that country and sent him into his fields to feed swine. So he's feeding an unclean animal here. This is obviously a Gentile, most likely. Verse 16, and he would gladly have filled his stomach with the pods that the swine ate, and no one gave him anything. So it brings him to the absolute lowest point of life. No, again, he's not eating the pods of the pigs. He can't even get those. He probably doesn't even have the energy to fight the pigs off for the pods. He's, the, he's that low. He is starving to death. This is describing not a person who's just poor, not a, just a person who's begging. We are describing somebody who is on the brink of starvation. He does not have food, and there's a famine. He can't provide himself food. There's not food for him. The lesson is that his decisions and way of life lead him to this point, the lowest point a human being can reach without something drastically changing, or he's going to die. That's where, where his way of lifestyle, the prodigal lifestyle he chose, that's where it leads him, crisis and the brink of destruction. Now, we don't have the time to go through, and we don't need to go through all the prophecies of the book of Daniel and the book of Revelation, but we understand in the Church of God that that's where humanity is leading. That's where the prodigal lifestyle of the world, humankind, is leading. It's leading to the reality of this state, completely destitute, completely in crisis. We know in the Olivet Prophecy, Christ says mankind is going to get to the point that unless those days were shortened, no flesh would be saved alive. Nobody would survive. There would be no human survival if there wasn't an intervention, if something didn't change. And that was where the prodigal son was. If something didn't change, he was going to be gone. It's a reminder of where sin ultimately leads. And the son in the parable comes to understand that. And humanity, too, at some point in the future, will come to understand that same lesson. When they see the ultimate path, the ultimate destination where that path they've chosen lives, that is when they'll finally understand the lesson. They'll grasp the truth at that point. It really comes down to mankind learning the lesson of Luke 13, verse 3, where Jesus says, I tell you, no man, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. So it gets to the point where mankind has a choice to repent or perish. And that was where the prodigal son was. He had two choices at that point, repent and go back to the father or perish. That was his two choices. There was no other option. There was no other alternative. This is where life had lead, led him. This is the hard way he had to learn. He chose the hard way. He chose the school of hard knocks. And that's where humanity is going to be, eventually find itself sooner or later we know from prophecy. Which now leads us to lesson four. Lesson four. Most of mankind will ultimately learn the lesson and repent. The encouraging part of the prodigal son is that he does learn the lesson and he does return. He does turn around. He, there is a redemption there. That's why it's a redemption story. And that's the encouraging thing when you look at it from this perspective. Humanity will learn that lesson. Let's look at verse 17 here in Luke 15. Go back to the story. It says, but when he came to himself, when he realizes the lesson, when it sinks in, when he finally sees, okay, I know why I'm here. 
the, results of my, the result of my decisions is where I'm here now. And I realize at this point I have death or repentance facing me. One of two options. What will he choose? But he realizes that. He comes to himself. And he said, how many of my father's hired servants have bread enough and to spare? And I perish with hunger. Again, the safety that his father's household provided. He knew that that safety was there. He knew he could... He knew it still stood. He didn't know if he'd be welcomed back to it, but he understood my father's way brings safety. They're, they have storage. They have food saved up. They, they can weather this famine. He knew that. Verse 18, I will arise and go to my father and will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you, and I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. Kind of, there's overtones of Psalm 51 and the attitude of David in his repentance. So after seeing where sin ultimately leads him to this total crisis, that is when he finally opens his eyes and basically comes to the realization of this fact. This way of life doesn't work. The way I've chosen, the prodigal lifestyle does not work. This is where it leads. Separation from my father did not work. It worked for a while, there was, there was good times for a little bit, but once he blew through that money, he realized this way doesn't work. Ultimately, he realized, he realized the hard way where it leads. Misery, suffering, and death. And he admits his sin and begins the process of returning to his father, returning to his family. Instead of arrogance and wastefulness, that was where he was in the beginning, Give me what I, have, what I want. Give me the, the inheritance. He returns in a state of humble contrition. Again, a lot of lesson, lessons on a personal level, level there. Again, multiple ways we can look at this parable. Brethren, this is a perfect metaphor for where most, not all, but most of humanity will be after coming out of what's coming ahead of us, the great tribulation, the day of the Lord, the return of Jesus Christ. We could even go on forward into the great white throne judgment. Humanity is eventually going to get to this point, this, this mindset. Turn back to Hosea chapter 6. Hosea chapter 6 is a prophecy specifically about Israel as it's coming out of the tribulation and what their mindset is. They've finally been humbled they will finally be humbled to the point of realizing their way, their decisions, their lifestyle did not work. And what is their response? And it's not just the response of Israel. It starts with Israel. It expands from there. But he begins with Israel. Hosea 6, and we'll read verses 1 through 3. What is Israel's mindset coming out of the Great Tribulation? It's very much the mindset of the prodigal son, a mindset of redemption. It says, come and let us return to the Lord. Again, that theme of return, another way of saying repent. For he has torn, but he will heal us. He has stricken, but he will bind us up. After two days, he will revive us. On the third day, he will raise us up that we may live in his sight. Again, connected to him. If you see somebody, you're close. It's all about connection. It's all about bringing it back together. Verse 3, let us know, let us pursue the knowledge of the Lord. His going forth is established as the morning. He will come to us like the rain. So there's an element of, of God coming to them, but there's also the element of them coming to God. It's interesting the parallel between uh, the, with the parable. 
He will come to us like the rain, like the latter and former rain in the earth. So we see eventually a repentant attitude that's not just going to be limited to Israel, but we believe it's going to be experienced by all of humanity at the correct time, at their time. They will come out of what they've experienced. They will realize the path and the decisions that they're the, the result of their decisions, and they will turn around. Just like the prodigal son, they'll see the consequences of their choices, and they will say, we want to return. Humanity will get to that point, and we'll be focusing on that, on that as we get to the Feast of Tabernacles, and it's one of the most wonderful themes of the Feast of Tabernacles when we consider the repentance of the entire of the entire earth and the knowledge of God filling the earth and people actually embracing that knowledge, people observing the holy days, keeping the Sabbath, living their lives within the confines of God's law and rejecting the prodigal lifestyle of the past. The prodigal lifestyle is going to be something of the past eventually, something people look at and, well, why did they do that? That's where it's eventually going to get, get to. Let's move on to point number five now. Point number five. Mankind's repentance and redemption is only possible because of a merciful father. Verse, we're back in Luke 15. Let's look at verse 20. And he arose and came to his father. And when he was still a great way off, his father saw him and had compassion and ran and fell on his neck and kissed him. So they're both moving towards each other. There's this reconciliation that's occurring. Verse 21, and the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight, and I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Again, that, that attitude of complete contrition, of re- complete, complete repentance. It's an amazing scene. And the pa- father just doesn't passively wait for the son to get to him. He, he meets the son in the parable. And I think the metaphor is there. The metaphor is that God is working out a plan to redeem humanity. He's not passive. He's not stoic. He's not just, well, do your own thing and we'll see what happens. No, he's working out a plan, a systematic plan to bring his creation back to himself, to redeem humanity. In this parable, the son is restored to the father and the family. It's all about the restoration of the family. And what makes it possible? The heart and core, the character of the father, the compassionate character of the father. And what makes the entire plan of God possible? What is the heart and core of what we call the plan of God? the love and compassion of the Father, and of course, the Son as well. There are so many scriptures we could turn to. We're not going to turn to it. It's a familiar scripture. 2 Peter 3 verse 9 reads, The Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some count slackness, but is long-suffering towards us. And that describes the Father in the story. He hadn't given up on the Son. He was still there. He was still ready with open arms. And God has not given up on humanity. He has not given up on prodigal humanity. He's long-suffering. He's working with them to bring about the redemption. Not willing that any should perish. That's not his will. And it wasn't the Father's will. He didn't say, well, okay, you've chosen your own way. Starve to death. See what I care. That was not the attitude of the Father. Not willing that any should perish, that all should come to repentance. So God is long-suffering and patient with us because of his abundant love and passion, just like the Father in the parable. The father didn't want to see his son perish. He was there. And, you know, it's, in, in, it's interesting because in some ways it's really unfortunate that this parable has been titled the prodigal son. Of course, that's not a scriptural title. Christ didn't give it a title. But it's really not about the prodigal son. 
The parable is not about, the prodigal son is not the main character in the parable. The father is the main par character in the parable. The father makes everything in the parable possible. He's at the center of the story. So really a better title for the parable would be the parable of the compassionate father. That's really what the parable is about. It's not about the prodigal son, it's about the compassionate father. That's the point of the parable. It's not about the mistakes of the son, it's about the goodness, the character, the love, the compassion of the father. So the family is brought back together, the family is healed and restored. The son repents, he's accepted by the compassionate father, but that's not the end of the story, there's still act three. There's still act three. Verse 25. Now his older son was in the field, and he came and drew near to the house, and he heard music and dancing. He hears the celebration for the return of the secondborn. Verse 26, and he called one of the servants, and, you know, what, what is going on? And then he's told that the brother has come back. But what's his response in verse 28? But he was angry and would not go in. Therefore his father came out and pleaded with him. So he answered and said, you know, all these years I've been serving you. I've never, you know, I've not transgressed your commandment at any time but you never gave me this kind of party. You never gave me this kind of celebration. But as soon as he comes back, then, then we have this party. You know, there's a little bit of, uh, he's a little bit offended by it. And the father says, son, you are always with me and all that I have is yours. You're going to have your reward. And you didn't have to go through all this pain to get to it. That's a blessing, focus on that. It was right that we should make merry because your brother was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found again. He points back to the redemption. Well, what's the lesson of this? I don't think the lesson is that the children of God in the family of God in the future are going to be somehow resentful of other people who are drawn into the family after Christ returns. I don't think that we're going to have the full character of God. We're going to think like he is. So I don't think that's the lesson, that somehow the spirit-born family of God is going to be resentful of those who come in later. No, let's look at one lesson. I think there are multiple ways you could look at this, but lesson six, lesson six is God's people, the first fruits, must learn to think like the Father. God's people, the first fruits, must learn to think like the Father. Remember, it's a parable. We look at the big picture. We look at the big themes. What was the core problem of the older brother's response? He wasn't thinking like the Father. The Father's thinking was driven by love and compassion, outgoing concern. The firstborn's thinking at this point, even though he had done the right thing, he was thinking based on himself. He was thinking based on resentment. But in verse 32, the father lovingly helps the firstborn change his perspective to think like he does, like the father does. And I think the parallel is amazing. One of the goals of our calling and one of the lessons we can learn is that we have to think like God, literally think just like him. We have his mind in a book. We can learn what, how he thinks at all times and every circumstance. But if we're honest, we don't always think like God. We struggle with that. We struggle thinking like God. We struggle with human-level thinking, human reasoning, but our whole, the purpose of our calling is spirit-led thinking, spirit-led reasoning. So in the context of this parable, we can ask ourselves, do we view the world like God views them? Do we view the prodigal humanity with some kind of disdain and contempt? I mean, we know they're deceived and they're blinded, the Bible says. Do we, well, they're, how could they be blind? Stupid people, no. 
We view them through the lens of their incredible human potential, the, the, the potential that they have that will be realized someday, the same way the Father views them. Do we view them as a lost cause or as future brothers and sisters in the God family? And that's just one application, but the big theme is the older son needed to learn to think like the father, and we need to learn and grow in thinking like our father, developing the mind of God, the mind of Christ. So brethren, the parable of the compassionate father, from this point forward, we'll call it what it should be called, is more, is probably one of the most amazing redemption stories of all time, far more interesting than the redemption of Anakin Skywalker, far more meaningful. Yes, the parable does teach us that people who stray from the faith can return. Absolutely, that lesson is there and we should learn it. It does teach us how we should treat a repentant person when they come back. Absolutely, the lesson is there, we should learn it. But the parable is much bigger than that lesson. When we look at it through a different perspective, a different lens, it contains a powerful metaphor and lessons about God's overall plan, but not just his plan, but his character, his way of thinking his way of life. God is working out a plan to redeem a prodigal mankind from their prodigal path. That plan is centered on the love, mercy, and compassion of the Father, capital F. That plan is all about restoring people to a relationship with him and bringing them into his family, bringing them together. So brethren, let's learn the lessons from this wonderful parable, the parable of the compassionate Father.